that which gives the saint his historical value is not the thing that he is, but the thing he represents in the eyes of the unsaintly. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Angus Bradley, host of the high performance podcast, surfer and ex-rock star. Angus takes us down the rabbit hole of how these outside perspectives have helped him see the obvious things that we are missing in our field. He covers the science in quotations behind percentages versus RPE and how we can really approach that. And he covers his thoughts on gates and why he thinks that is the holy grail of movement. This is a really awesome podcast with an even better dude. And I hope you guys get to experience even just a little bit of the energy that Angus brings to this podcast, to this conversation and to life. And hopefully you guys can take that and bring it to your guys' life and your guys' day. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, You'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, give the people what they want. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Well, Angus, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here, mate. Yeah, you've been recommended on this podcast like a bunch of times, and we've we finally connected on Instagram, and I got to look at your page and check out what people have been recommending. I'm excited to dive in. Our little talk before has kind of got me fired up. You got good energy. Nice. No, I saw, um, I think I found you sort of through Jake Tura and just like anyone he associates himself with. I know it's always a safe bet. It's like they love training. They love smashing weights. They love performance-based stuff. And it's just like, I just know they're going to be some of my people as well. Yeah. Jake's, uh, Jake's the connector of all connectors. He keeps going on these nomad visits and visiting all these strength coaches. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, do you want to tell Hopefully we can get him down to Australia at some point this year. That would be awesome. If you get him out there, I'll, I'll hop on that train with him. Go with him. That'd be awesome. Dunks down under. <laughs> yes, that'd be awesome. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into the field of sports performance and kind of how you got to where you're at right now? We kind of had this conversation just like five minutes ago before we started recording, and I think people are going to love it. I've been trying to nail it down on so many podcasts because people like explain that. Tell me how you got into the industry. I'm like, it's so fucking weird. And there's so <laughs> many twists and turns. It's like... 
because it's like all that youth just like playing aerobic sports obsessed with surfing sort of thing and then tried to be a rock star after dropping out of uni got to the point of like rock bottom I was like what am I going to actually do then became a personal trainer because my brother just got me a job at the local commercial gym and then I just sort of got the ball rolling from there like turned through a bunch of lost clients and things like that and then just you know knew that I wanted to work with an athletic population but just in Australia there's just no clear way to be like okay so you know I'll go to a college and I'll intern at a college and then I'll work my way up the chain start to work with amateur athletes and then eventually uh, transition into working with professional athletes or something like that like it's just so hard to sort of envision a way to actually get into working with that population um Sorry, I just keep fucking. Today. <laughs> you're you're cool. That, that that's one of the coolest uh, backstories that we've had. I I thought the surfer approach was going to be the cool outside approach, but we also have the rock star kind of approach. First off, do you have any uh, singles out there that the listeners can listen to? Check it out. Look up the maze on Spotify. We were a bit of a one-hit wonder. We had some um, the internet comedians start using yeah, start using some of our music in some of his videos, and that led to a little bit of a traction that sort of gave me the confidence to be like, oh, maybe I can actually go out and and pursue this a bit more seriously. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into that a little bit. Is there anything that that kind of rock star lifestyle taught you? And that you kind of brought to the field. Cause that's something I look at a lot. And this, this is a weird rant on my part. If you think you're weird, I promise I'm weirder. Um, uh, I love looking at like rock stars, like uh, something I love, like looking at like Lincoln park, like when Chester is singing to the crowd, just how everybody is connected to Chester. And you, you talk about wanting to be a good communicator as a coach. Like you want to be a good communicator as a PT, whatever you are in the field, like you want to be a good communicator. It's like, I'm watching that. I'm like, that is the purest form of communication there is. Like this dude is telling his whole life story and everything that's happening. And every single person in the room is paying attention and watching. I'm interested. Have you like, did you take any of that experience? Like what, what was kind of that rock star experience and how did you kind of dive it into the strength conditioning field? It definitely, it definitely tells you that uh, attention is fleeting and <laughs> should be valued and that there's a lot that goes into creating an atmosphere and trying to shape an environment uh, to get a certain outcome and beyond what you're explicitly doing. You know what I mean? So like a lot of people, when they start organizing these bigger production shows and stuff like that, they realize that it is about more than the music. Like what does the stage look like? What is the room? How's the room lit and things like that. I think those are all the things that we sort of underappreciate as strength coaches and things like that. That like something I always that was consistent in the music industry and it's consistent in fitness, especially in the online spaces. Everyone's always complaining about everyone ripping off each other's ideas, but it's funny in music because especially in Western music, we have eight notes, but there's like infinite variation within that. And like everyone's doing the same thing, but then we have all these completely different manifestations of it. And I think that's the same in strength and conditioning or in training and things like that. It's, you know, everyone's squatting, hinging, pulling and pressing, but then there's so many different manifestations and so many different place we can take that and and everyone thinks that everyone's doing the same thing but again it's like there's so much space between the notes to explore that that's freaking awesome that might be the instagram quote right there that's pretty cool there's eight notes and there's different ways to combine it and put it into your program and i think that eliminates like a lot of the i don't know man it's like you see so much twitter i like i started getting on twitter this past year and i don't know why like 
it's so it, that's all it is, is people arguing over who stole whose notes. And you're like, you're right. It's like, how are you like playing with these notes? Like, how are you combining it? Like how I play in my eight notes is totally different than how you play your eight notes. Well, I think this will hopefully speak to you as well. Like music at the end of the day, it's something that we associate with so much emotion, so much creativity and so much feeling in that. But at the end of the day, it's all mathematical. Like pretty sure it wasn't like Pythagoras, but you use Pythagoras' theorem, like, yeah, it'll work out the side of a right-sided triangle, but you also use that stuff to figure out like how far away to put the frets on a guitar. And I'm pretty sure it was Pythagoras that came up with the eight-note sort of Western scale that we use. And like, you know, theoretically, you know, you can you can calculate the numbers and you can compute all these things that should sound good, but then you get people to listen to them and they're just not that into it. It's like there is just that. And I don't want to call it magic because it's not magic. It just means that we don't fully understand music or that like you can't break it down to a mathematical equation. And I, and I think that there's something true of that when it comes to fitness, it's like, yeah, there are rules and there are things that tend to go together, but I think people are trying to over science it or they're trying to take this thing that has so many like quality based things and trying to turn that into data and just some of the stuff gets lost along the way. Maybe that's just me romanticizing the woo and the magic, but I am a believer in that for what it's worth. No, I, I'm probably I'm probably too much into that world. I usually have to draw myself back into like the, the balance. But I think the balance between a yin and yang, like it, it's something that like not a lot of people talk about, but yet everybody sees, you know, like like you're exactly talking about like we're talking about all this data. Uh, yet when we go into the football field, it's like, all right, is the data winning? You know, like if the data was winning and we did have the answers, we oh. know exactly who was going to win which game. But we don't, you know, so that, that's where I kind of struggle with that approach is. And, it, and like you said, part of it is. We just don't understand. We don't have the ant. Like, it, it's not that it is woo woo. It's not that it all is magic. It's that we just don't have the answer yet. But that's not how we approach it. We approach it in the way of we have the answer. We are good. Like, this is the answer. This is the the solution to the problem. And then we go on the football field and you, you see firsthand. It's like, oh, you don't have the answer. Like, you lost that game. If you, if you had the answer, we would have won that game. You know. So I, I love that balance that you talk about. Yeah. Well, we're dealing we're dealing with these athletes who sort of are more of these creative types and they are more sensitive and they are like those musicians. And we come at them with all this masculine energy and like data crunching. And it's like we're not speaking their language. Like at a certain point, you do need to find that connection and like. You know, the biggest athletic complaint I ever get is like, oh, why'd you have a shitty performance? Like, oh, I just felt off. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> so it's like feeling matters. <laughs> and being able to like get to the bottom of that and just having that connection, I think is something that I love. Like, I love thinking about not that I don't, I don't know if we'll ever have the answers to that, but loved at, at least thinking about and kind of diving into. But something that you continue to bring up is kind of both sides of it, both sides of the data, both sides of the, 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 the creativity in both sides, but like, it's, it's the nuance, you know, like it, it's not one, it's not the other. It's kind of that balance. It's kind of, maybe you're going to be a little bit more over here with this one athlete, and a little bit more over there with the other athlete, but you are ebbing and flowing. You are going back and forth. And I think we can apply that to the movement patterns. And something that you post a lot about is let's say it's uh, getting onto the heels and training the heels, or it's getting on the toes. But what you talk about, it's like, it's not one or the other. It's the ability to train both. It's the, it's the process of training both. It's the process of adding variability. Why do you, why do you value those things? Like why, why do you think that matters with your athletes? Oh God. Variability. Um, well, especially in terms of like, you know, getting the weight room to transfer outside onto the court, let's say, or onto the sporting field. I think a lot of the people we're working with, because that's something where like, I think it's always been discussed. It's like, you know, it's like it ha the weight room has something to offer every athlete, but it seems that some athletes 
get such a performance boost from the weight room, just sort of training in traditional ways, like a meathead, not thinking about it too much. But then other athletes, they don't have such a good experience. But I think that's because there's just a certain way that things are done in the weight room. There is a mold or there is like just a meta in the weight room. And if we can just smash that open a bit and realize that we've unnecessarily constrained ourselves in the way we approach the weight room, there's certain movements where like, that's not a weight room activity. Get that out. That's, that's lame. That's for sissies or things like that. And if, if we just had a bit more open of a way of viewing the weight room, then we could get more things that actually are meaningful to athletes. If we're just a bit more open to just expanding that palette in the weight room and doing some things that might be viewed as like maybe a corrective exercise, but like if you keep adding load and you keep progressing that, you know, it's not going to look corrective for that long. Yeah. And, and I, then just in terms of like, you know, learning to use all the parts of your body that are there, like it just doesn't make sense to me, this idea of like, oh, all these people are stuck in their heels. It's just like, I've just never seen that. Like so many people are just so good at falling forward. I've just never seen anyone like who was that good at pushing through their heels. Like if anything, I, most people to me seem permanently in their toes. Like I'm keen to pull people back into their heels to see what happens when I expose them to a part of their body that they just haven't pushed through in that long. And one of one of the things that I love that you, you you talk about is kind of that the strength aspect and balancing, like is it strength or is it the skill acquisition part? Because I I think that's something that we talk about. Like you talk about the unnecessary mold that we kind of put ourselves in, and I see it a lot in American football. It's like you you, you have that big strong guy in the let's say it's the back squat. Let's say he's a really big strong guy in the back squat, and the strength coach is telling you like he's super strong, he's super strong, and then we go into the field and he's not super strong, and it's like. To me, like that guy, that guy is just, he's gotten really good at back squatting. And that was the reason I know it's true is because it was me. Like I had zero variability in my program and I got phenomenal at the back squat pattern. And I got like, we didn't even switch up like back to front. It was literally just, I was a master of the back squat, you know, like even if you put me in a front squat, like my, everything would fall 200 pounds, you know? So I love, like, I, I would love to hear your, your, your approach to like, how do you, how do you approach that? Like the skill acquisition part of, is he getting stronger or is he getting better at the squat and is like, how, where, where do you find that balance? Cause sometimes it is just, he does need to get better at the squat. Uh, and then sometimes it is like, he, he needs to get stronger. So how, how do you find that balance? The way, the way I look at strength training for athletes is like people love to come up with strength standards. It's like, all right, let's just make this. Like all you need is a double body weight back squat and then you never have to back squat again. And I just think that that's a completely backwards way of viewing things. Like I think strength, as much of it as possible in as many different lifts as possible until these threats to the system start to come in. So, you know, you're spending too much time in the weight room or you're getting too efficient at one lift and you're not able to express your strength in a number of different ways, or you're not, allowed, you're not able to assume the shapes and express the transitions that are required by your sport. Until those threats become a realistic thing, I'm going to get you as strong as possible. I want a five times body weight squat, but can we get a five times body weight squat without spending too much of our life in the weight room, without getting taking too much of the attention away from our sport, without, let's say for an athlete that needs to be able to locomote efficiently, without stiffening up their thorax too much. I don't think so. But how close can we get to that? So, you know, for some people with those KPIs and managing those threats to the system, they're going to get to like a three and a half times body weight squat. Some people might never scratch a, a body weight squat like that, but that is what I'm after as much strength as possible until we create some other problem by pursuing strength too much. Yeah, that, that's and that, this is that thing. That's how we change it from like, I think people try to poo poo strength too much. It's like, no, we know it's a good thing. It's just, but strength training often comes with in certain circumstances, a lot of extra baggage that people don't like to admit. 
No, man, dude, that's freaking awesome. Cause that's everything. Like I, it, the people will like get mad at me for saying like, uh, don't pursue the back squat in a sense, but it's like, it, it, it's that approach. It's don't pursue the back squat in like, in where the cost is the sport. Cause the, and that, that's like where we are at in the American world. It's we are costing, like we're taking away from practice time. We're taking away from their ability to practice. And I was the same way I would go, like I would go lift for two to three hours a day right before practice because I loved lifting and I loved something I was good at. And then I would go suck at practice or just drag my ass through practice. And I would like, I just had the backward thought process that the lifting was going to make me better in this regard, rather than like just spending time on my sport. And that's exactly where my head goes. It's pursue it. Like everything that we do is pursuing bettering and leveling up the human body. Like we're never going to stop doing that. Like you said, it's never going to be a number like, okay, we're just done doing that. It's continue to level that level that up until it starts to take away from other aspects or, and this is another part. It's like continuing to level that up because you want to get good at your sport. Cause I think the one way we get it wrong too, is we try to level, like we try to level that piece up just to level that piece up. And like the test becomes, you know, the measure becomes a test and you kind of get lost in the pursuit of something that wasn't your initial pursuit. Your initial pursuit was to get better at your sport. Yeah. And then you started grabbing a barbell and you got addicted to the numbers. And then like you got addicted to the barbell rather than addicted to your sport. And that's something that I see a lot of athletes struggle with. And for some of them, maybe it's like, all right, you don't love your sport. Like, that's all right. Like, but we should have that conversation, you know, like if you love the barbell, maybe you go powerlifting, maybe we do something like that, you know, like kind of go there. But if you do love your sport, we should not be confusing that, like confusing our goals, which I think we do a lot of. And also, I don't know how, well, I kind of have an idea because I'm aware of the history of strength and conditioning, but the back squat is like an oddly specific thing. Like that's not really specific to many other things. And like, sure, like I'm not saying the back squat's going to ruin your athleticism, but it's so weird to me that that became the go-to. What other positions in life does someone just restrain your arms behind your back? Like... It's literally like you're getting arrested. Like I, I just, and, and like I said, it's not about like, oh, everyone's always trying to produce force through their legs and get their arms out in front of their body in sport. So that's the way we have to do it in the weight room. But I'm like, well, conveniently front squatting really is like that. And I just think, like I said, for a lot of people, once we overcome this, like, oh, it looks a little bit different to how a lot of other people pursue it. And maybe a lot of other people poo poo the front squat. They're like, oh, you can't actually load it up, but let's give it a chance. And let's see how strong we can actually get our legs uh, with the front squat and things like that. And I think for athletes, who do need to get their arms up above their head or who do benefit from being able to reach more. It's a really, really handy position for them. And practically, how are you, how are you implementing this variability? Are you doing like every three weeks? Are you changing up every week? Or is it just the depend on how the athlete like adapts to variability? We're probably more, uh, we, we, we change it up pretty much every single week, different, different variations, but how, how do you kind of approach that with your athletes? Um, a lot of it then that comes down to how much variation they even need or can handle because they're kind of separate sort of things for some people. Some people do like that consistency, but again, I want them <clears throat> performing the same exercises every week because they just have certain exercises that they absolutely vibe with and they don't want to let go of them. Like we can allow you to do that. And then I'm just going to drive variability purely just through the accessory be like all right you've just got your list that you love so i'm going to drive all this variability by just mixing up all the accessories constantly i'll just be like just pick a bicep variation that you like make sure it was something different to last week whereas other people it's literally like all right i need you to bend your hips and knees on the load and don't really care what you do with it <laughs> it's kind of like 
put it on your front, put it on your back. It's just where it's outside of the weight room. So yeah, in terms of variability, it's just that tool. It's like, you can explore it as much as you want. And it's like, you've got to get pretty silly before you're going to ruin your strength gains. If you're actually a decent athlete and if you're actually showing up and you're actually training hard, like things don't need to be as scientific, oh, use that word in inverted commas. Like, you know, I think people, when they think of science, it's this like really controlled and like, yeah, for a study, it has to be, but like things don't have to be like that level of controlled in a program to actually stimulate gains and things like that. Cause like when I first got into PT, that's what we were told. We're like, you know, you've got to read the research and you've got to give out the right dose of volume and you've got to periodize correctly. Otherwise they'll do all this hard work and they won't get any gains. Um, but that's actually not the case. Like you can just show up, work hard. And as long as you have some sort of a not stupid way to organize your training, you're going to get some gains. Well, I think one of the big points that you're kind of getting at and mentioning is like, viewing a stimulus for a stimulus, you know, like, cause I, I feel like we just attach the stimulus isn't back squats. Exactly. You know, like as, if you, you're picking something heavy up, you're moving something fast, you know, like that's a stimulus, like the body adapts to the stimulus. They, they gets the stimulus and adapts to it. But I feel like we, we've lost that understanding. We, we just think it's like, Oh, we're not back squatting today. We're not getting better. Oh, it, it, whatever the lift doesn't really matter what the lift is, but we, uh, we this don't. This feeds into a greater conversation about percentage based training as well. Cause I forgot that that's why some people find it confusing. They're like, wait, but if I'm back squatting at 85%, how do I then work out my front squat? But it's like when you use RPE, all of that's taken care of for you. Because again, what is the stimulus? In my mind, a lot of the time, it's like, what tissues are you using in what direction? And then um, proximity to failure. And RPE, and in combination with just a recognition of the general pattern that the exercise was, it ticks all those boxes. So an RPE 8 for a set of five on front squats and an RPE 8 for a set of five on back squats, yeah, close enough for me. Pick whichever one you want. Yeah, and the demand, the amount of times I've had that argument is just like, well, it's not exact. It's not, it's like, what? <laughs> How is the body adapting different? Like, does the body really know like your 82 versus your 81? You know, like it, it, it's just feeling this. Well, I, I actually get pretty competitive because I, I am bullish on RPE. So when they say like, oh, it's not precise, it's not objective, I'm like, what is that percentage that you're writing down? What's it a reflection of? So it's a percentage of a squat that they did six months ago. It's a, it's, a, it's a percentage of a squat that they did on some random rainy Tuesday over a year ago or something like that. I'm like, when is this data from? And you think that that somehow is indicative of their level of preparation for some random Wednesday, four weeks from now. Like people get so caught up in the data. They're like, well, oh, it's a precise number. I'm like, yeah, but like, what does it mean? Where did you get it from? Like, how did you then get to that? Like, what's the intent behind writing it? Like people just see a percentage and like, oh, we're using data. There must be a lot of science in this. <laughs> well, and yeah, when, when they're hitting that uh, max around 600 milligrams of caffeine with the entire team screaming at them too, you know, like, yeah, like the, the, the points that you mentioned, like oh, that's, that max is not going to be the same as- That's it. And then they're in the gym- by themselves a week later. Yes. It's like, all right, I got to get 80% <laughs> yeah. of that. Uh. Yes, man. That's, that's, and that, that was one of the points I was going to get. I mean, uh, not that and we you want to talk about precision. Well, what's precise about my RPE eight is that guy can go hit that RPE on any exercise. It doesn't matter if his girlfriend broke up with him in the car park right before he trained, he's still going to hit that RPE. That is like, it's so fail safe. It's and say, say, I know uh, in the States, sometimes you guys have problems. You got kilo plates, you got pound plates. Well, even that doesn't matter because you're just going by feel. How hard did it feel? And, and one of the things that I love too is like not to totally get into an RP like conversation, but like educate the athlete, you know, like they don't, they don't, 
this is one of the things that drives me freaking insane, man. It's like, they don't need to be baby. They don't need everything laid out. Like tell them what an eight is and then have them understand what an eight feels like in their body. You know, like don't tell them, Hey, we're putting on 105.2 pounds, you know, like what's an eight feel like it's for your sending body? Him the wrong messaging. It's sending him that message. Like that 0.5 matters. He said the 0.5, like I'm really going to remember that. It's like, I want to make sure every time I load my bar, I get it right to the 0.5. And then as they're descending into that first rep, they're like, did I pick the precise weight? today that I'm meant to be the scientific weight that's going to lead to the magical gains. It's like, whereas they should just be focusing on just being in the moment and actually training. And also this idea of like the idea that you have to teach people how to use the RPE. My mentor, Jamie Smith, who got me onto RPE based training, he put it best. It's like everyone uses RPE from the moment they first step into the gym. They just don't realize it. They go up, they pick up a dumbbell and like, how heavy does this feel? Okay, this is a heavy enough point to start with. They get the percentages down the line. Percentages were second man in. I don't care what anyone says. Everyone deep down in their heart of hearts fundamentally understands RPE. I've also seen experiments done live where they got advanced powerlifters and they got newbie powerlifters and they got them to try to gauge their RPE and then they tested their proximity to failure in a set shortly after. And it was all the experienced lifters that actually had more emotional emotional baggage around certain numbers and more prior expectations about how certain numbers can move. And it's actually lifting experience that clouds the judgment of RPEs. So this whole bullshit thing about, oh, you need to be an advanced lifter um, to, to use RP correctly. It's like, no, it's self-awareness is the limiting factor. And that has nothing to do with lifting experience. Yeah. And not, yeah, dude, the self-awareness piece is, is key. Cause it's like, it's like, cause one of the things is like, it's they, people say it's a lazy way to program. You know, it's like, to me, it's almost the opposite. Like it's almost lazy to do percentages because like, you're just telling me like, there is no, there is no self-awareness there. It's just like, okay, I'm they showing just got that copy of Prilipin's chart hanging out of the yeah, man. It's like, and that, that's like, it's just such a silly argument to me. It's like a stimulus is a stimulus be self-aware, like let the athlete, like the athlete's going to figure it out on the field. I promise you they can figure it out in your weight room, like where there's so many less external factors and so many less like things coming at them. Like they'll, they'll be able to figure out what an RP is like their whole life is self-awareness on the field. Like stop trying to take that away from them. Yeah, exactly. Teach them to lean into it and teach them to indulge in it. And it ends up being better for you. Like I want, uh, an athlete that can take care of themselves in the weight room. Who's going to actually come to me when they have a problem? Not when they're like, how much do I lift? And I'm like, I don't know. Put some weight on the bar. Like, does it feel like a good working weight? Yeah. Uh, and like, then- give me those athletes all day. Don't give me that guy who's just waiting for his precise percentage and who needs it like to a perfect point. Yeah, dude, don't get me started on that rant. The amount of athletes, it's almost like training them out of being trained, you know, like the, the like where they're looking at you for like, everything. It's like, man, just like, how did it feel? Like, how heavy did that feel? How did that look? Like, what, what do you think? You know, like, you don't need me. Like I'm, I'm there to like direct and guide, but yeah, you're, you're going to get me started on that whole rant. So we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but. Uh, but if, and it feeds into that, like dictator coach, like I hold the percentages, I it hold is. the secrets where RP actually forces you to have that conversation with your athletes and be like, Hey Matt, you're actually a part of this. You're in the driver's seat with me. We really have to go on this hero's journey together. Yeah, dude, man. They, they, a lot of a lot of people don't want to relinquish that power. They're like, I want to be master of the percentages. Like I hold all the secrets. Like I am the key to progress. It does not happen unless I'm here telling you specifically what to do. Yeah, dude. The amount of times I've gone down that rant, it's like they just we just want to be called coach. You know, like we want that power title. It's like, what do we do to earn that power title? But what yeah, dude, it's gonna get it down that whole rabbit hole. Um 
I'm interested in diving down. This is one of the big things that I want to talk to you about is kind of the balance between your biomechanical approach and the the biopsychosocial model of things. Uh, because I'm always interested in talking to coaches like yourself, where you obviously like have an immense knowledge of the biomechanics of movement. So it's like I'm watching you break down like an arm curl, you know, like when the one of the most in-deck breakdowns of like why you're doing it, why you're doing this certain exercise, what positions you should hit. And then I also am hearing you talk about building the environment, you know, and the big things. It's like how almost like a lot of times you can get away with some stupid training if the environment is right and your belief system is right. And I'm always interested in this because like, how do I myself balance between like the yoga, like movement yogi, you know, like the corrective guy, like how do you balance that and the good stuff from there? Like there's good stuff. It's why it's why it's around and being able to help and move people, but also not being the, the, like the meathead, the rah, rah, like only just yelling at people and throwing shit on the wall. Whereas there is good things in the like belief aspect and the environment building aspect of that, but trying to blend those two rather than being one or the other, like how, how do you go about that process? I think the specifics can be really, really useful. One, obviously when they help you solve complex problems, but also for giving you intent, like in a certain sense, you can come in and say like, yeah, just do whatever like just squat, but then like just having a little bit of an intent and having like a conceptual gold standard that you don't get too attached to and you don't let that derail like the athlete putting weight on the bar or something like that. But just in terms of giving them an intent to connect with, I think that having a rich biomechanical technical model to just give you so many different little things for the athlete to tap into and find so many different little points to connect with the athlete. And there's also this certain thing of like, even if you know biomechanics isn't everything, you're going to have all these coaches coming in uh, being like, oh, yeah, athlete just went valgus. They're going to blow an ear. And I want to I want to understand biomechanics in a really, really in-depth way where not only can I tell that coach that one, biomechanics isn't everything, but even I can play in their world and be like, all right, even if we pretend biomechanics is everything, here's also why you're wrong on a biomechanical level. Uh, because I think there's something to be said with being able to engage with the industry that you're in at the end of the day. And we have an industry that is like really having a hard time moving outside of this purely biomechanical lens. So it's nice to be able to be in this world with them and be like, no, no, I can play your game, but there's also all these huge other rocks that I'm aware of. And I'm not going to let the biomechanics get in the way of that. But then once we've got the environment sorted, it's like, yeah, let's just keep finding these like little exposures to unique positions that you're not getting into. And it's like, you kind of need to understand biomechanics pretty specifically to coax people who can assume a lot of positions, but find those things to still push them and find new positions and things like that and find new skills to develop. Yeah, I love that. And then also just being able to like alter things slightly biomechanically to help the athlete like tap into a feeling of like, is this a position you get into? Like if I constrain you in this way, does this feel like when you're in this part of the game or this part of your sport and just finding those sort of sensory connections for athletes? Yeah, I, I love that connection piece. I mean, how did you get into the biomechanical world with the, the background that you laid out of like the uh, not finishing college and getting into the rock star world? Like how did, how did you become like, so immense in, in this knowledge piece. Um, when I first got into personal training, I was also obsessed with Olympic weightlifting and I just found that there was too many really high level coaches saying not quite the complete opposite, but just really conflicting things. So I was like, all right, I need to go outside of weightlifting to find the answers because there's just too much internal conflict and too much like, all right, we, we, we can only talk about weightlifting technique with people who deeply understand weightlifting and things like that. And I was really lucky 
um, to work alongside another coach called Graham Boris, who exposed me to some postural restoration Institute videos when he was sort of going down that rabbit hole too. And just the way these guys talked about the biomechanics behind breathing and walking and the way that they sort of fundamentally underpinned all human movement, which I was like, Oh, that's a pretty bold statement. Um, but then after going down the rabbit hole and trying to sort of break down that whole like functional movement as it relates to breathing and walking. And like, that's how you get your ideas and yielding and force production. I found that a lot of the patterns and the things that they describe actually are really efficient for weightlifting and things like that. And then when I started to look at the way forces produced or yielding actions are sort of performed in surfing, I actually found that they were more similar than different, whether it's breathing and walking, whether it's weightlifting, uh, or whether it's surfing, it's like, there's a lot of like just general patterns when it comes to yielding and overcoming and things like that. And I think once you understand that, then you can sort of step into any domain and be like, all right, I might not understand the specifics of it, but I understand generally yielding and overcoming actions or inhalation, exhalation, expansion, and compression. And we can use that to then maybe make some assumptions about what useful strategies might be in other sort of tasks. Because when I was learning about like the terms like internal, external rotation, pronation, supination, flexion, and extension, like, you know, they were descriptors for actions, but they never had a quality associated with it. Like, okay, so this movement is generally associated with a propulsive or like, uh, quality, or this is more associated with a yielding quality. Um, and then this is where we get down that whole gate conversation because like gate to me is everything about movement. It's just like yielding and overcoming. A lot of people, I think they like to talk about gate as specifically walking, but like gate to me, it, it's just everything. It's, it's bench press, it's squatting, it's walking, it's surfing. And so just to cut to the chase, what it generally is, is these yielding actions are generally your flexion, abduction, exercise external rotation and it's your extension adduction and internal rotation that are all your overcoming or force production concepts uh and then this like and what what excited me so much like when i heard that information i'm like that's the opposite of what i hear about squatting well, kind of the opposite because they say knees out on the way down but then they say knees out on the way up as well but i'm like all right but you guys are like saying pronate your feet as hard as you can and let your knees move in towards the midline. Because why I liked that is because while I was on the way up, we were all seeing these weightlifters, like elite level weightlifters. And so many of them, their knees move towards their midline on the ascent of a squat. And they get this supposed valgus movement. And even powerlifters who are trying to keep the knees out as hard as they can. It's like, they still sort of move in. Like so many of these good squatters. And it was of all people, it was the PRI guys who could explain it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this, this breathing and walking thing? Where has it been my whole life? And then I start to look at like the clean pool, all the yielding and overcoming actions there. Like the second pool, it looks almost identical to mid stance in sprinting. And sure enough, it's all your internal rotation, extension, dorsiflexion, all these breathing and walking concepts. They seem to work for everything, like to an extent. And the... the, the um, the, the paradox is, is something that I kind of want to like dive into too. It's like, we see it and then we try to explain it away. You know, like you see that amazing Olympic lifter going to like bring those knees in and it's like, oh, it's valgus. It's bad. But it's like, 
All right. Well, he's doing that with like 600 pounds and just one gold. So like, how is that bad? You know, like same thing, like where you'll see runners, like let's say the triangle when we're running and making cut to look like that's bad because knees came in and was like, okay, but he's the best running back in the world. It's like, why are we trying to explain away the, the best? Like that's a paradox there and what you're saying and what we're seeing. And we're going with what you're saying rather than what we are like seeing in front of us. How do you kind of balance that out in your training to something that I struggle with? is I feel like we try to fix a lot, you know, like, and I think that's where like a lot of issues with the squat come in is like, if we just let them squat, I think it would be better. But it's when you try to fix the squat that it's like knees out, drive your feet into the ground, you know, like to squeeze everything. And then it turns into this like robotic, like movement when it wasn't like that before. How do you balance that? Like when you need to fix, when you need to intervene and like, when it's like, all right, fixing, like if we try to fix you, it's actually going to be worse. Like you, you're just moving good. Like how, how do you balance that? Hmm. Well, see, and that's why you can never let injury prevention be a consideration in your technical model, because you're just chasing this dragon that you're never going to catch because injuries are just a bit too random. And there's no movements that I'm aware of that produce injuries like that consistently, unless you're straight up like getting heel hooked, you know what I mean? In the middle of a squat, someone's trying to knee bar you. It's like, we just cannot predict injuries that, that reliably based off movement alone. And, and with this system that I buy into every movement, we don't have good movements and bad movements. We have yielding and overcoming actions and they're all useful. Some of them are less useful for certain tasks. And that's why we're like, Hey, maybe you need to focus on more of an overcoming action here. Not in terms of like, I'm trying to scare you out of this movement and things like that, because there's so many of these systems that get people to move like robots. That's what they've done. They've opened the door to injury prevention and then it just ruins your technical model. Whereas if you always stay performance minded, your technical model is just going to be and I find if you if you sort of adopt this lens, there's not I haven't found I haven't found anything so far that doesn't sort of conveniently fit into it. So there's, there's been a hell of a lot of confirmation bias with this stuff. Like once you start just looking for these patterns of yielding and overcoming, like man, it's just so easy to see it in so many different things. And, it, and it's so good then like stepping into different realms equipped with that information because people are like, oh, this is a bad movement in this point. And you're like, I don't know about that. And you just sort of sit and wait and observe. And sure enough, you start to see it everywhere. I, I love the always stay performance model because that's something, and I'm not sure what it's like over there, but something the college sector has got themselves in trouble with is they are hired based off injury prevention. Like that, that's their entire job. You know, like that's what their salary is hired off of yet. Like we know we can't do it. You know, like, you know, you can't, you're not like you. So then they had, they're stuck in the model of they were hired to do one thing, but they're unable to do something. So then they have to like trick people into pretending like they're doing the one thing they were hired to. And that's where you, you turn into all this fixing, you turn into adding like booty band, you know, like it turns into well, your all job becomes a performance, right? Cause you're yes. just trying to impress the person who keeps your job more so than actually producing something that you think will be useful for the athlete. And I, I, that's just like the biggest problem with strength and conditioning. I'd say so many people are in a role where it's like, they're honestly doing more of a drama performance than anything. Well, and that, that's what I love about the private sector. And this is something I was writing about earlier today. It was like in the collegiate sector, like, who are you selling to? Like, you, you're selling to the coaches, you're selling to the admins, you know, and that's your job is selling to them. Whereas in the private sector, it's like, you've got to sell to the athlete. And the only way you're going to sell to the athlete is like, does your stuff work? You know, like in the college sector, yeah. your stuff, it doesn't matter if your stuff works because you're not selling. Yeah. Do they want to hang out with you and does it work well enough? 
yeah, are they going to like, is it okay? If they step on a field, do they feel better? Like, is it working? And yeah, do they like you? You know, like those two things where it's like, you could be the biggest dickhead. I mean, there is all over the place. So you'd be the biggest dickhead ever in the college world. It's as long as you like coaching, like people like who could be the biggest tyrant. Yes, man. I mean, it's like, there's just that, and it's that disconnect because you, again, you're being paid by somebody above that. And that like your job is to entertain them rather than to get your athletes results. And then that, that's where it's like, again, how do you change that? You know, like, do you just, do you just have to leave it all? Or like, is, is there a way to blow it up and like make them understand like your, your clients are your athletes, you know, like your clients should not be somebody that's not in the room with you. Like you, you need to be able to work with these athletes and get them results. And like you said, like they, they got to like you rather than if I, if I were to like treat my private clients, like some of these division one coaches treat their athletes, like I would be broke in 10 minutes, you know, like I'd be broke right away. All of them would be leave. like, I'm not doing that. But, and, but, and that's what I like about establishing that relationship because not only are they paying you directly, so you have to treat them a little bit better, but like they are, they're showing you that respect. Like they're giving you the money. They're not like, I know that the college pays for this guy's time. So like, screw this guy. Like, yeah, I'll entertain him a little bit, but I'm not really going to listen to it. It's like they're showing up and you, you have, you have confirmation. You have that understanding. It's like, all right, this person believes in what I have to say. And that's powerful on the coaching end as well. Yeah. Yeah, dude. And it's, it's like the, the belief and that that's something that it's like, if we go back to the big piece, it's like the environments are going to be completely different. Not that the environment is terrible, just because like in the college sector, you're always going to have like a hundred dudes. It's like, okay, you, you bring in a hundred athletes. Like it's eventually it's just going to self-organize to be like an amazing atmosphere. Cause they're all competitive and alpha males, but it's like the, the, the actual intent behind what you're talking about, something that's paying me the amount, like they're going to, their, their, their intent is going to be so much higher. Cause they're, they're like, they're physically giving me money to get that intent, you know, like it's such a different, like ISOs is such a good example of like the two difference, like the, the, the isometrics that you can get and the intent that you can get in the private sector versus college sector to me is like, it's just the, the, the perfect picture of the differences between the two and the environments between the two, because one, like you said, they, they have to be there and you have to be their coach. And the other is like, they're making that choice. Yeah. And isometrics to me are the per- isometrics and breathing drills are the perfect test to actually see if you have buy-in because all of those, both of those things just absolutely flop. If the athlete doesn't have buy-in, the athlete's like, all right, so I don't stretch and squeeze. I just hang here with this weight for as long as possible. It's like ISOs are so like mentally taxing and so physically hard if you really push it. And same like with all the nuance in like to get a good exhale and to get like a nice, soft, relaxed inhale and things like that. If that person's skeptical, I just don't even bother. And it's not like I need them to drink the cool way before they get into it, but it's like, hey, are you open to just doing science a little bit different here? Can we, can we try this? Whereas if they're like, eh, it's like, I'll let them watch other people go through the process first. It's like, fine, just watch it. If you like it, you can hop in. If not, it's all good. I understand it. It's a bit different. And I need you to believe in this stuff. Otherwise, you're not going to have a proper go at it anyway. Whereas like it's people have just seen it before with your traditional strength stuff. Just like go to a back squat. You don't really have to sell that to that many people. Yeah. Well, that answers my, I was going to ask you about the breathing and how you implement that, because that's something that's like, if you want to go like woo woo exercise, it's like, all right, you're trying to get an like an athlete that just got done. Like everybody cheering them for squatting 500 pounds to now focus on their inhale exhales. The, the process of like getting them to understand something we, we do a lot of like meditation stuff at, at our place as well. And it's, it's, it's a very similar thing. It's like, you're not going to force anybody into that, you know, like either, either they're into it and then they, like they're, they're totally they're, they're bought in and they're just going to do it. Or you, you just, I kind of just, I haven't do the same thing. I'm like, all right, you watch it. Like if you, if you like what you see, you can stay. But like, if you, if you totally are not there, like I'm not going to force you into it. Is, is there anything that you do like other than that to kind of 
push that agenda with them, especially since you like value the breathing so much? Cool. So with the gait stuff, and especially like we're saying as easy as split squats, it's just easy to expose people to all those different positions and things like that. In terms of the breathing, a great way, and if you've got a little meathead on your hands, bracing. There is so much mysticism around bracing, especially when it comes to lifting heavy. And the way I explain bracing, like I think it's very clear, but it's very different to the way a lot of people are cue bracing and things like that. And usually because I've just come in and said the opposite of what everyone else has said. They're like, wait, this guy has a bit of a different take on breathing. And then usually that's when I can get them to come down the rabbit hole with me because we've got to do some nice big exhales to find that good bracing position. And I know I can improve people's bracing when they don't understand that. And then we've had an immediate little win on the board and then I can get them to buy into exploring the rabbit hole a little bit further and trying to get into some other positions and trying to just refine this breathing thing or try to get some variability and try to be able to demonstrate some different like uh, controlling of the breath. Yeah. Like you said, it's almost like giving that cookie to get like the, the, the sinker into them. And like, once you get them hooked on it, like you're, they're set with them. Um, since my guests will kill me, if I don't ask you this before we get to the rabbit fire rounds, can you kind of explain your bracing process and, and what you mean by how, how you do it differently? Yeah. So everyone's always been told like big air, big air, right? How about get as much air in as possible. But the issue is like, what are we talking about? We're trying to increase intra abdominal pressure. So it's not that more air equals more pressure because to get more air in, people just create a bigger space. Whereas what people need to do is learn what an exhaled posture feels and looks like and then try to maintain, in inverted commas, this exhaled posture, which is a nice small container, and cram as much air into that small container as possible. So we actually want to have an exhaled posture, and we don't. We are going to expand, but we want to limit the expansion because that is the brace. Inhalation and a big gulp of air, it just pushes every part of your thorax into this stretched out yielding orientation, which isn't very good for force production. So when you teach people to sort of get that exhale posture and fill that tiny container with as much air as possible. They get so much intra-abdominal pressure, actual pressure. And then they also have a much more relatively concentric orientation of a lot of those tissues that help stabilize the thorax. So force production goes through the roof as well. And when, when you're teaching your athletes, this, is it something that they, that they pick up pretty quickly and you're seeing an increase in the amount of weight that they're using? Uh, or is it like yeah. how it feels? Or at or least what's like kind those of guys process? who so many people just feel like their back's doing a lot of work in every compound movement. And often when you sort out the bracing, they just feel like their limbs are contributing a bit more. Not that I'm against lifting with your back, but I think it can be a big source of frustration for some people. Like, oh, I just, I'm doing squats, but it just feels like a back exercise. Like that's always an awkward, uncomfortable feeling for people. Just help them with little things like that. But then, yeah, some people straight up, like if they don't know how to brace at all, it was just throw an extra 20 kilos on the bike. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you got them hooked forever. Yeah. And then, then you got the problem. Like, oh, I just created this little meathead. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, let's, let's get to the rapid fire rounds here. Um, and the, the, the first question I'm interested in is what are some of your favorite books? And it can be in the field or out of field, whatever, whatever direction you kind of want to take this, but some of your favorite books. Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis is the best autobiography of all time. Um, when I finished reading the Harry Potter books, fiction was ruined for me. Um, so I just started churning through autobiographies because I was like, eh, I need cool stories, but just like I can't imagine any piece of fiction ever being better than Harry Potter. 
Um, Tissue is just, it's obviously everyone knows the singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Anthony Kiedis. And he had such an interesting childhood, but especially with me trying to be a rock star, he was in that last generation of musicians to literally like, you know, you get signed by a major label, you go from being a bum to a literal, like they got million dollar signing bonuses from Warner Records. Not the record deal. Million. They went from having less than ten thousand bucks in their individual accounts, and they all got given a million dollars cash just for signing. And they like they go out that afternoon, they buy a place in Beverly Hills, and they all buy Harley Davidsons. And it's just like that is just that. It's, it's and that's like that's not even the best story. The whole book is just most ridiculous life anyone has ever lived. Um, and then outside of that, I really like Anti-Fragile and all the Nassim Taleb titles. And um, in terms of a training book, I think a lot of people would benefit from reading Pat Davidson's Rethinking the Big Patterns, especially if you want to integrate some of these more, uh, quote unquote, functional concepts into the weight room. Well, we, we almost had beef there because I thought you were talking shit about Harry Potter. And then we, we would have had to scratch this whole podcast. If oh, no, no, no. I love it. <laughs> that was my favorite book series as a kid. I, I sat in uh, the midnight line for the the seventh release or seventh book release. Like I was all into that, man. It was too good. Like, because it just ruined, ruined reading for me. I was like, no world will ever be that rich again. <laughs> Yeah. Trying to get, trying, I, I always think about like trying to go back to like how, when I was reading those books, like how deeply in that world I was right. Like now I'm, re- I'm reading like some, like if I read like a sports performance book or something like that, it's like so much different than the feeling of reading a good, like reading the Harry Potter books the first time. Yeah. The mental imagery is just second to none. Yeah. And then final question of the podcast. And then this is kind of when all the, uh, the coaching stuff is over, uh, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Oh, I, I never saw anyone who was like me really like me, uh, who was looked at as an authority on like strength and conditioning. Like everyone, when I was starting to get into PT, it's like, you had to be a big muscly guy, or you had to be like hyper masculine. And like, I, I spent so much of my like early adulthood, just trying to convince people that I wasn't gay. And like, and I had all this internalized homophobia and stuff like that. And, and I think like now we're sort of seeing it with like how hypercharged the masculine is, right? And we're trying to drag people back into the middle and be like, let's let's lean into more of this like feminine energy in the weight room and stuff like that. So I just hope that I can just be that thing of just like being a strength coach, but like not letting that shape who you are too much and still being yourself and like being a bit of a silly goose. And like, you know, I'm not like a hyper masculine sort of person. And I think initially in my career, like I did try to sort of lean into that more masculine side but just like honestly just like being myself and like if if any coach can like look at me and be like man that guy's really himself and he don't give a fuck what any of those other strength coaches think about him or what what they're saying behind his back uh, if any strength coach can look at me uh, to have i think fuck yeah dude that that's so awesome that's i mean that's everything that i t- try and talk about and preach too it's it's like almost like everybody in the field, like you said, is trying to fit into the box and try to be the mini me of, because some, some arbitrary figure like above them is like, it looks like that and does that. It's like, who cares, man? Yeah. Like, that's not you. And but, then you- but we've got to show them something different. Like, and that's what I mean. It's like deliberately, it's just like making an effort to be yourself and show yourself. It's like, yeah, I think it does take a bit of, a bit of courage. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm all about that. You should see some of the shit I wear in the weight room, you know? <laughs> I'm all about just like, one, just bringing that artistic piece, but just be like, if you want your, and then one thing that's like, before we end the podcast, I'll go on this little rant, but it's like, if you want your athletes to be themselves, like, how are they going to do that if you're trying to be like somebody else? You're trying to be this fake person. Like, 
the, the athletes smell it. Like humans smell bullshit on each other. Like you, if you're not being you, they smell it. Like, it, like I'm talking to you right now. Like I know exactly like what you're saying is what you're thinking. You know, like it, it's you, it's who you are. And it's when you talk to people and it's bullshit. And then like the athletes are seen, it's like, of course they're going to be different people around you. It's like, you're putting on an act. They're putting on an act. It's like eliminate it, man. Like just be yourself, let them be themselves. And then once you get that man, like, and this is like this past year, we really started to get that in our gym. It's so magical. Like you show up every day, just yourself and all the athletes show up every day, just themselves. And it's just a bunch of weirdos in a room trying to get better, man. It's the coolest feeling in the world. Yeah. And that's the thing. Most people who do get into lifting weights or who do get into strength and conditioning, they are all weirdos at the end of the day. But then after a few years in the field, everyone starts to talk the same, walk the same, dress the same. But I just want to see an industry where it's just like, I can look at you in the street and I don't know you're a strength coach. I love that, man. Dude, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. You, you kind of, you crushed it. Thanks so much for having me, man. This was great. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.